Good morning, everyone. Um, tomorrow I've been invited to um, speak on um, Radio National on a program called Life Matters on um, Couple Therapy and also to talk a little bit about how my Zen practice influences the way I work. So I thought I'd kill two birds with one stone <laughs> and prepare for it tomorrow and give a talk which is relating to that subject today. And what I'm going to talk about now is not exactly the same as what I'll talk about on radio, but it'll touch on some of the points of it. <coughs> this is more adapted to a, a Zen context and people who um, understand Zen practice a bit more. But And the name of this talk today is Connection, Disconnection, Connection. Mm-hmm. And as you all know, and as we've talked about many times and have, as you've read in books, one of the fundamental aspects of Zen and Buddhism is the understanding that everything is interconnected with everything else. We refer to it as interbeing. It's a fundamental basis of life as we see it. We can see it before our eyes. It's not so hard to see, really and that everything is transient and those two things go together and so the fundamental teaching of Buddhism is that's the way things are that's the way we were when we came into the world before we came into the world and somehow we become alienated and disconnected from that experience and we begin Dharma practice um, and practice so that we experience that interbeing and transience in a transforming way and so we're connected again. So we go on a journey from connect- connectedness, disconnectedness and the alienation that comes with it and we return to connection again. Mm-hmm. We don't actually achieve anything, we just came back to what we didn't realise was there in the first place. But if we follow it through you know, from the beginning of our lives, there we are in our mother's womb, you know, in a sort of safe place, and we're not really conscious of that much, you know, but everything's okay, no, no, no big dramas in there, mm-hmm, usually. There's some sense of something pleasant or unpleasant going on outside, some unpleasant noises sometimes, sometimes pleasant ones. And then we come into the world, we're born into the world, and, and, uh, most people are born um, not into a harsh environment, not, not least in our culture. Some people are, but we're generally we, we're born into a loving caretaker, mother or father, who usually a mother who loves us and wants to take care of us and looks after all our needs. And we haven't got much of a sense of self of connection or disconnection. We just sort of be and we do what we need to do, and then. As we grow older, according to Buddhist psychology, and as we've talked about many times, we find out that there are pleasant things in life, and we'd like to have more of those pleasant things, and there are unpleasant, painful things in life, and we'd like rather not to have those. Now, it's only natural survival mechanism that we would feel that way, but then Buddhist psychology is we do more than that. We start grasping after the good things, the pleasant things, we start having a sense of aversion to the negative things, or we just kind of give up and become apathetic and indifferent, you know, and all those things 
create an ego identity, a kind of a closed little loop, and that's the beginning of alienation. <clears throat> and because we're, we're closed off, we're just sort of preoccupied with this little unit here, and we've lost sight of how everything's just connected in the first place. So that's what all human beings go through. And then we have our um, cultural conditioning on top of that, and we have our gender conditioning on top of that, which can create even more alienation. You know, so like with gender conditioning, um, if you're, you're a man and you have an experience of stress or anxiety or distress, well, it's not very manly to express that. You can be angry, but you can't be anything else. So parts of you became alienated from parts of yourself. Right? If you're a woman and you're angry, and women aren't supposed to be angry, then you become alienated from yourself and you become angry or aggressive. So parts of us start, we start to become alienated from aspects of ourselves. And then with cultural things, do you know, you, like in Australia, or in, in my instance, um, you're a white person, you know, born into a culture where there are indigenous people who are dispossessed or their migrants come and you can be born into a culture that you just assume because you're white that you're superior. Mm -hmm. That creates alienation. Or you're born into a family that just happens genetically to be, um, have very high IQs, and then you create your identity around being intelligent, and you think you're superior to other people who are less intelligent than you. Or you're born into a family where there's artistic talents and you, you, you highlight that and you think you're superior to people who aren't as artistic or sporting, whatever it might be. But you can be, you can be um, conditioned into, um, driven by a social anxiety into social status, right? So the, the alienation can happen more and more. Somewhere along the line, um, some people, but not everyone, recognises their alienation and how they're actually disconnected from something. There's a strange sense that um, I'm alienated and I don't know how I got here, um, but this doesn't quite seem right. Surely there must be another way of being in the world. And then you start something like Zen practice right? or Christian practice or something and you start to examine how you got into this alienated state and there's kind of a, 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 a way ahead where you can be connected again. Well, you might want to overcome that sense of alienation and loneliness that you might feel, and you look for that in um, a marriage, you know, or a, or a committed relationship. But then what might happen is you've got all that conditioning and alienation and grasping and aversion going on and it hasn't been examined and you bring all of that into relationship. And that, that first flush of being in love, you know, and connected, um, can then diminish over the years because both people are bringing these kind of patterns into their life. I think it was um, Albert Einstein who said, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting to get a different result, that is the definition of madness. Mm -hmm. And as a couple therapist, that's what you see 
people doing over and over again. They're doing the same thing habitually over and over again um, and expecting that they'll get a different result but alienating themselves and alienating their partner in the, in the um, process of it. For example, someone wants closeness and intimacy with their partner but when they're not getting it, they pursue it with such anxious intensity or anger that it actually drives the other person away and they don't get what they need, right? And they keep doing it over and over again, wondering why the intimacy doesn't develop in the relationship. Or someone, on the other hand, is so driven by aversion to things unpleasant that they can't address conflict and they keep withdrawing and withdrawing and escaping or going from one relationship to another. And they become more alienated through doing that. We all have our particular styles in which we either overcome the alienation or we create the intimacy and connection again. The other thing too is um, some of you might have heard of um, a writer called Hugh Mackay. Um, who's often interviewed on interview. He's a sociologist and he's written a lot of really good books on why on Australian culture from a sociological perspective. And in his latest book, he's basically asking the question, we've got better education, we've got better health facilities, we've got better food, better housing than we ever had before, and yet we're all more unhappy. You know, and we're all suffering from depression and anxiety. Why? Mm-hmm. And his response is the same as this. is because we're more alienated. We've lost a sense of connection and social cohesion and we're more alienated. That's why people are so depressed and anxious, aggressive and so on. And um, my hunch is, is that that's not only true on a broader sociological scale, but that's what comes into marriages and long-term relationships as well. There's a greater sense of alienation in relationships um, and lack of connection and intimacy, and that's why the divorce rate goes up so much in Western countries. There's other reasons why it does as well, but that's why it goes up. In Buddhism, And in our practice principles, we start off our practice principles caught in the self-centred dream. That self-centred dream is, as we know, is the the manifestation of grasping and aversion and apathy that goes round and round and round. And as you've um, heard me speak about before, the the, the, the closest equivalent to that in modern psychology is narcissism, um, which is a style where... Um, it's actually often used as a criticism, you know, um, or an attack on other people. But it's really important that we understand that term, that narcissism points to a state of suffering, an alienation. It's a person's attempt to gain self-worth, you know, and praise by being superior. Mm-hmm. And... Um, And as they do that, they just ruin the relationships around them and become more alienated, more alienated. Um, But narcissism is an epidemic 
in our culture and uh, it's growing and growing and so it finds its way, it seeps its way into relationships and intimate relationships where we have um, even greater sense of superiority, entitlement and so on but underneath the soft belly of it of that sense of outward show of superiority is a vulnerable, scared person inside who feels unworthy. Mm -hmm. That's why it should never be used as an attack mm -hmm, when we use that word. And as I've mentioned before, it should never be used as an attack because we're all narcissists. <laughs> we're all touched with the same brush, you know. And where, where Zen practice comes into this is the, the very first place that we need to touch base with is as we talk about in the, in the practice principles, we're caught in the self-centred dream. It's not other people are. Oh, my, I guess my husband, my wife, my friend, my mother, they're all... No, 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 I, I'm, I'm caught in the self-centred dream. If you don't start there, you, you, don't, you don't really progress. A lot of people want to bypass that. You know. um, it's an unpleasant truth to, to make contact with. But if you do that, you do what's referred to as a spiritual bypass. You'll, 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 you'll get flattened, you'll come down to earth. Like Icarus, you know, flying too close to the sun, you, you, your wings will melt and you, they'll come off and you'll crash to the earth. Um, so if you don't start there, you won't get any traction in your practice. Um, and then... Once you start to look into that, you know that the three aspects of Dharma practice which um, help us along the way and nurture us and help us to get from this state of alienation and lack of intimacy back to connection again are non-violence, non the precepts of non-violence, mindfulness in meditation, as we do a lot of today, mindfulness in everyday life, and recognize and having insight into the fact that we're caught in this dynamic of grasping aversion and apathy and that we can cultivate it's really not who we really are it's just what we're being conditioned into and if we that settles down and we see below the surface of that we start to see that our true nature is one of equanimity, compassion, joy and equanimity. That compassion, love, joy and equanimity. Mm -hmm. And that that becomes the expression of our true nature and our sense of interbeing. That's what, that's what arises when the ego dissolves and we see our sense of connectedness. So all those three things work together so that we come back to a sense of connectedness again. Now if you apply, not that I teach people the precepts in couple therapy, but it guides what I do. Um, first of all, for people to be close and intimate relationship, you've got to create an emotionally and physically safe environment so two people can be intimate and vulnerable with one another. So that's where the precepts come in because you look at, we won't look at all of them, but examples that jump out at me not criticising the faults of others. If you're constantly criticising someone, you don't create intimacy. You create a threatening environment you know, to be in that no one can relax in. 
um, if you're praising yourself at the expense of others and creating a superiority, whatever dimension that's on, do you know, um, moral superiority, intellectual superiority, um, emotional intelligence superiority, whatever it might be, um, you create alienation and a break in the connection and intimacy. If you um, harbour anger, you know, and then it comes out as passive aggression or resentment or explosion, you create alienation. Anger in itself, when it comes and goes, fine, you know, that comes up in relationships, but the harbouring of it so that it's built up um, and, and leads to what we refer to in couple therapy as a, a harsh start-up to a conflict rather than a soft start-up. That's, that's what creates the disturbance. So if we would apply precepts to relationships, either as a, a Zen practitioner or non, then that's, that's the basis in which you, you need to practice to create intimacy and safety and vulnerability for yourself and other people. Then of course there's mindfulness, which is mindful meditation, what we're doing, and mindfulness in everyday life. And in psychology, as many of you may, may know, mindfulness is used to treat depression and anxiety and pain management and things like that quite a lot. It hasn't really found its way into working with couples or relationships so much, but it's starting to. And, um, and I'd like to be able to do that with couples. Ideally it, would, ideally it would be people meditating, but if it's not meditating daily, at least being able to practice mindfulness in everyday life is a beginning. And the benefits of mindfulness and the meditation we do, just to outline them, um, they calm our emotions, so they, they, um, they help us to de-stress, so we're not just running on our fight-flight mechanism of anxiety and anger all the time, we get below that level into something which is calmer. The other thing that mindfulness does, the practice of mindfulness, not only do we de-stress and calm, but we also start to connect with ourselves. So we start to inhabit our body fully and we develop a kind, non-judgmental, um, empathic relationship with ourselves. Right? So we become friends with ourselves. We overcome that, that disconnection we may have between our head and our heart or our head and our body. So that occurs as well. We connect with ourselves more in a more, more empathic way. And the other thing that happens with mindfulness practice is that we step back and we become the witness to our experience rather than being over-identified with our thoughts and concepts of the world and our emotions. Mm -hmm. So we have that sense, like Joko says in one of our um, readings, um, instead of saying she's difficult, I'm having a thought that she is difficult. Instead of saying I'm unworthy, I'm having a thought that I'm unworthy. You know, so that it develops that capacity to to step back and witness what's occurring rather than just being engulfed with every thought and emotion that comes to us. So all those three things also help in relationships and in our life. <clears throat> like thirdly, I said, it's the, is the development of insight. One, as we talked about before, 
starting with the, the insight, yes, I realise I am stuck in a self-centred dream. And then the insight in the positive sense of that word that comes when we realise that our true nature is actually one of equanimity and joy and love and compassion and a sense of connectedness with, the, with, with things again. So that's our journey as a human being. Connection, disconnection, and then if we practice with these things, we come back to, to connection again in relationships and with life, generally. Mm-hmm. So through practice, we, we come back to connect with ourselves, with our body, our feelings, our, our inner experience. We connect again through our senses, you know, hearing and seeing, touching things in life. And we come back to a connection with others, other human beings, other beings, um, other things in life, you know, into that sense of unity of life again. The word enlightenment, which is a, the E word, which is a word we never use here very much, um, the word enlightenment, actually, it's interesting to, re- to, to reflect on its origins because the word enlightenment came from what was called the Age of Enlightenment, um, which was a movement, an intellectual movement, um, cultural movement in the 18th century in Europe, particularly focused around France. And it was an age of um, the... the um, of seeing that, that, that reason and liberty and freedom, you know, were much more enlightened ways of being in the world rather than being darkened by superstition and dogma and so on. And um, so that, that's where the word enlightenment came from to describe the experience that the Buddha had or what we might aspire to. But what the Buddha realised and what we realise more and more through our own practice is that we're not, we're not going towards an age of reason or necessarily liberty in the way that it was described in, in 18th century Europe. What the word enlightenment is referring to or the Buddha's experience of awakening is referring to is coming back from alienation to connection. Coming back from alienation to life, to intimacy with life, with deep intimacy with life. And that is always, we need to remember that is our path here each time, is coming back to a deep intimacy with life. And coming back specifically, you know, to the intimacy that can be developed through friendships, you know, and relationships and through through, um, um, community. that's what it's all about. And even in its um, imperfection, you know, um, we all, uh, like we would all experience today when we do meditation, that we land in the present moment for a while and then we wander off somewhere and then we realise that and then we come back to the present moment. That's our practice. So we're not always connected. <coughs> But if you mature in the practice, you recognise more quickly when you're disconnected, when you've wandered off into daydreaming or conceptualising, whatever it might be. You catch it more quickly and you come back to connectedness again. And that's also one of the... If you transfer that into relationships, 
that's one of the that's one of the skills that's there in a mature intimate relationship is it's not as though you're always connected like like being in the present moment you're connected and then you disconnect but in mature couples um, they realize the alienation and disconnection really quickly and they quickly get back to connection again because they've developed really good skills of what we refer to as emotional repair you know, realizing disconnections there taking responsibility for your part in or whatever apologizing forgiving whatever it requires without rushing it all inauthentically because you're scared of abandonment but maturely working through it quickly so that you get back to connection all again that's what a mature intimate relationship would look like where it's connected most of the time and there's moments of disconnection misunderstandings conflicts and then there's that capacity to get back on track quickly again so it's where meditation process with our, our connection with ourselves comes and goes right? and our connection to experience but also how our connection to others can disconnect quickly come back again that's how we mature on the path thank you <coughs>